millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the Ghibliotech the podcast that fells the forest of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm being taught how to feel. So join us in our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Jake, we've come to the end of the third season of Ghibliotech. I'm wheeling in the TV end of term, and we're going to sit down and watch yeah. the longest Studio Ghibli film this week. Yeah, it's, this is like, I've got a hand in my essay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know, do you give me a mark or something? Everyone's do I get a, a gold sticker? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it, yeah. There's no rules in this classroom. <laughs> we all get along. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, we, we mentioned in our previous episode about The Wind Rises that that in a way felt like the culmination of all our work so far on this show. And again, this week, we're in the same situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me personally, uh, Isao Takahata has been the great discovery of doing this series. Uh, I had known of Miyazaki's films and I could recognize the imagery from them. And I, was, I felt I kind of had a familiarity with them even without knowing them. Whereas Takata was completely new to me, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been really nice to track the films that we have done. I know we haven't watched all of them yet, but we've definitely had the starting point and now the end point as well. Well, this, this third season has been one of endings and beginnings. We had Goro Miyazaki's debut feature. We had the very first Geo Ghibli feature. We had uh, Castle in the Sky. We had the final films. We had When Marnie Was There, which was the final film released under the Studio Ghibli banner before they went on that long hiatus. And we we had The Wind Rises, which up till now is the final Heo Miyazaki film. And now we have what is definitively the final Isao Takahata film, mm. the final feature he made before he died in 2018. And I know that you love this guy. He's been consistently surprising for you as we've been going through, so I really can't wait to hear what you make of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I think it's, it's one that I'm really curious to find a lot more about how it was made as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But before you do delve into what I'm sure is a fascinating history, uh, do you want to just set us up a little bit about what the tale of the Princess Kaguya is all about? Let's start with a bit of plot synopsis.
A bamboo cutter chops into a tree and finds a tiny baby inside. He takes the child home to his wife and they decide to raise the kid as their own. The baby soon grows rapidly into a young girl and the bamboo cutter, already a little curious about this mysterious arrival, finds a pile of gold inside another bamboo tree in the forest. This convinces him she is a magical princess and must be introduced to the world. He spends the gold to move the family to a castle and court high society. And before long, a cohort of suitors are knocking at their door, promising untold gifts and treasures in exchange for Princess Kaguya's hand in marriage. But the young woman pines for the freedom of the forest and is terrified of the inevitable fate that awaits her when she must eventually return to her former life on the moon. Can you just tell me a little bit then about how this all happened? How have we ended up with this quite beautiful but quite mad film? <laughs> it is a bit mad, isn't it? Let's check in with Asao Takahata first. So on the podcast so far, we've covered three of his films, Grave of the Fireflies, Only Yesterday, and Pompoko. In between Pompoko and this film, he makes a film called My Neighbours the Amadas in 1999, which we'll get to eventually. But after then, things go quiet for a long while. Toshio Suzuki says that Takahata was toying with adapting the samurai epic story The Tale of the Heike, but Takahata's chosen animator of the time, Osamu Tenebe, didn't want to draw scenes of violence, so that completely scuppered the project. Right. Can you imagine that, the, the power an animator has? We've covered this before, that Takahata doesn't draw himself, so is almost beholden to the, the animators he picks, and he's it, really inspired I'm, by them. I think this is why I get so excited about his films, yeah. just because you don't know what it's going to be. But then flash forward to 2008, it's mentioned Takata is developing a new project, working on something new, and he confirms in person at an event in 2009 that this new project is going to be an adaptation of a 10th century folk story, The Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, which is widely known in Japan. It's a very well-known story. It's the inspiration behind many th films and TV shows and anime series over the years. And in fact, Takahata was once involved all the way back in 1960 in a project to try and turn it into an animated feature. But this was his chance, what, 50 years later, to do it his way. And his way is a very particular way. Luckily, the project was primarily supported by Seichiro Ujie, who was chairman of Nippon TV, a backer of Ghibli films. He had worked as exec producer on Pompoko, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, and the Amadas, among others. He was a huge fan of Takahata's work, and he was getting on in years, and he says he wants to see another Takahata film before he dies, to take him, to take with him into the afterlife. So he almost gives Takahata a blank check for this movie. Um, and work begins, and it's very slow progress. Well, as we know, he is descended he, from a sloth. Descended from a giant sloth, which is what Miyazaki has said in the past. Toshio Suzuki, who's the MVP at Ghibli, doesn't work as full-time producer on this one. He's away making all those Goro Miyazaki, Hiramasu Yonobayashi, Miyazaki movies at this time, like Ponyo, etc. So instead, he enlists a young producer called Yoshiaki Nishimura, who we now know has gone on to found mm. Studio Ponok, who at this stage was in his mid-twenties. And he is the full-time producer, mainly, mainly tasked with g up Takahata to work maybe a little bit quicker. They also outsourced production to a separate studio on the other side of town where Takahata could work in peace. They enlist mainly freelancers, a small team, so they can work at that pace and they can work separate from the, the hubbub of Ghibli. And just to give you a taste of the speed of this production, 
Nishimura at one point reported that the storyboarding process of this film <laughs> was progressing at a rate of two minutes a month. <laughs> and the original <laughs> screenplay was going to be three and a half hours long. So can you imagine, <laughs> just for the storyboarding, how long that would take? Um, even once the storyboarding was out of the way, Takata took a very experimental and uncommon approach to the animation of this film, which you've probably seen, before you've even seen the film, you may have seen the trailer or imagery. This looks nothing like another yeah. Ghibli film. This um, way that Takahata throws out the house style of animation and replaces it with a very sketchy aesthetic that focuses on the hand-drawn lines behind every figure and character, these watercolour backgrounds that bleed into negative yeah. space. Almost like charcoal-y lines exactly, to the yeah. figures. Um, I interviewed Mr. Takata about this um, a few years ago, and he said this is the way he put it. Things have progressed more and more towards 3D animation, and I still think that it's very worthy to have hand-drawn lines. I often say that with this loose or rough sketch-type drawing, leaving some space unfilled allows people to use their imagination and it allows them to recall their own memories of things while they're watching the film. But I also think there's the aspect of conveying the excitement that the artist feels when he's drawing a very quick sketch. So that kind of vitality and liveliness also appears in the film, and I really appreciated that. So, really experimental. Toshio Suzuki says that this approach was incredibly labor-intensive. If you think about how the way animation works, you have key animators who maybe do keyframes and then in-between animators that have to join them up. Mm. When there's so much focus on the individual lines, you have to have these in-between animators tracing the lines over and over and over again, mimicking the thickness, softness, variety of lines that you have in this film. Suzuki said that this method could take up to four times as long as the traditional way of making this film, and he said Takata was insane. This is the sort of <laughs> approach that you should do for a short film, not a feature that could be three hours long. Luckily, though, Takahata had, as we said before, the animator Asabu, Asamu Tenebe on board and the background artist Kazuoga, who made the backgrounds for Princess Monoki and Ponyo, and they were really up for it. So they, were, they stood by him throughout the process to capture this vision. But production dragged on and on and on, and the budget piled up eventually topping out at around 5 billion yen, which is something like 35 to 40 million pounds. Um, I know that you came to me earlier and said that this is your trivia tidbit. Yeah, that this was the most expensive Japanese film. It still is the most expensive Japanese film ever made. Admittedly, on the worldwide scale, 35, 40 million dollars is, is like Bridget Jones' baby level of, of budget. But this is a big deal and is almost an insurmountable amount of money to put into a film, yeah. but luckily they had that blank check from Nippon TV, you know? Um, but sadly, this is really sad, I, 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 with, a, with a tinge of perhaps irony, Seichiro Ujie, who invested so heavily in this project, wanted to see the film before he died, died before the film could be finished because the process took whatever, you know, five, six, seven years. He died in 2011, so he only got to see the script and some storyboards, um, which... It's such a shame, but then his successor saw it as Nippon TV's legacy to, mm -hmm. to fund this film and see it through to completion. The initial plan was for when the film was released, it would be released in tandem with The Wind Rises, as we talked about in the previous episode, in this tribute to the 25th anniversary of the double bill release of My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies. They were going to release these two massive 
complex masterpieces side by side in the summer of 2013, but Takahata misses the deadline. <laughs> he can't make that Shot. deadline. So the tale of the Princess Kaguya comes out November 2013, and it makes 2.47 billion yen at the box office in Japan, which is what that's half of its production budget. It didn't crack the top 10 highest grossing films of the year in Japan. As we say, nearly every episode, it feels like the Ghibli films far and away top those, those mm. lists. This one doesn't, you know, com and compared with the 12 billion yen that The Wind Rises grossed on its release, this is a That's quite a, a small, yeah, if you want to call it a flop, it's, it's, it's a small box office recoup there, isn't it? On its international rollout, it screened at Director's Fortnight in Cannes. It went to the Toronto International Film Festival, quite prestige release strategy there. Takata was, was there in Toronto, which is where I interviewed him in 2014. It, it was nominated at the Oscars in 2015, didn't win. As we've said, no, no film post-Spirited mm. Away has won the Oscar. It was nominated up against Big Hero 6, the Disney film that won Box Trolls, How to Train Your Dragon 2, and Song of the Sea. Uh, which Song of the Sea is fantastic, yeah. by the way, the cartoon saloon film. This was Isao Takahata's final feature before he passed away just last year in 2018, and it stands as his final masterpiece and such a powerful testament to what he sought to achieve in animation. But let's not forget that unlike Miyazaki, who would make a film and announce his retirement every time, in fact, Miyazaki announced his retirement before Kaguya came out. So when Kaguya was released, everyone was like, Takata, are you going to retire? And he said, no, I have no plans to retire. And in fact, he doesn't really. He, he's, um, I think he's 78 when Kaguya is released, but he's still poodling away on projects. He, in fact, as we've covered in the BFI Live episode at the end of last year, he acts as artistic producer for Michael Dudokdevitt on The Red Turtle. So he's still working. He's still out there engaging with the world of animation. Um, and the Red Turtle premieres in Cannes in 2016. And you can see that he's engaging with these filmmakers. I'd recommend, and I'm sure you would as well, Jake, that listeners go back and listen to mm. that episode because Michael has such memories of working with Takahata. He doesn't disappear into himself like Miyazaki does. And it's such a shame that he worked at such a slow pace that we didn't see more from him. Yeah. But what a one to go out on. Is it one to go out on, Jake? Let's see what you made of it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So Jake, you are a confirmed fan of Isao Takahata. I'll admit it, yeah. And no two films of his that we've covered so far have been the same. So what was different going into this one? Well, um, I, I wasn't as as it is so exciting because you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, with only yesterday, you can hear in our episode on that just me gushing about the fact that he is so happy to just break the form whenever he wants for the to give the most expressionistic moments that he can. Uh, and we see the same in Pompoko. Like Pompoko contains a bit of live action, yes, which is utterly mad. Like. <laughs> This is like Miyazaki's never going to go near something like that. And it, that's why it's such a thrill to watch one of his films. And going into The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, I'd heard this is sad. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd heard or I'd seen stills from it and clips from it and little gifts that people had posted. So I had a sense of what it looked like as well. I had a sense that it looked completely different to mm-hmm. anything that I'd seen before which in a way was familiar <laughs> for him. But there's there's a lot that feels close to Ghibli stuff that we've seen before um, that we'll delve into a bit. I know that there's, there's some contributors here that, um, although familiar, are fresh as well. I see the opening credits come through and I see Joe Hisaishi's name, which in the canon of Ghibli is not a surprise, mm-hmm. really. But actually... I had to text you afterwards saying, is this, is this the first time that this has happened? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the only time that he worked with Takahata. And in fact, he came in late in the production after a different composer was on board and then left. And he brings a, a very different texture to the film, doesn't he? The, yeah. His music is incredible. Yeah, it made me think of Arvo Part, the uh, classical composer, and it's really relaxed. It doesn't have that sweep uh, that his previous scores does or that uh, kind of the freewheeling approach that his score to Castle in the Sky does of being able to mix completely different styles. This, he's he's really settled down, he's mellowed, and it's, it's totally a fit for mm-hmm. the film. And again, it's really interesting to see uh, Takata be able to bring someone who's completely different uh, and get them to do something completely different, but to make it completely fit. And I think this always goes back to him just being a director and not an animator, Mm -hmm. that he's able to kind of give himself that open mind of just thinking, right, even if it may not necessarily uh, be obvious on the page, these are the right people for the job. Exactly, yeah. And let's talk about that animation. It's the thing that strikes you immediately about this film. It's a little bit there in My Neighbours, the Amadas, uh, which is almost a trial run for this film where he uses this negative space. He's not defined by creating a full frame of yeah, detail. And it's, and it's in the more romantic elements of Only Yesterday when she falls in love with the, the baseball player and the frame disappears and you totally get that uh, reflection of affection. Mm-hmm. But this is charcoal watercolour artwork come to life, right? Yeah. And you see that, that vitality of the animation... It, 
it isn't as smooth. It's funny, we, we talked about this on the Ponyo episode where Miyazaki had seen his artwork, his animation becomes smoother and smoother with House Moving Castle and he wanted to dial it back and have the joy of the animation, animator's lines and that's exactly what Takat is doing here. It, it's not smooth, it's a little jerky, it's a little lower frame rate perhaps if you want to think about it like that but it is so full of life and joy, the expressions. The expression, the movement, mm. uh, the young baby Kaguya, there's a sequence that just follows her on a play mats just rolling around figuring out her body how to crawl how to walk and you you so have a sense of this baby and that feeling it's it's amazing to watch just how focused that character design in this is and that's something that we've looked at this series of perhaps in Earthsea or Marnie whether it's the character faces haven't as been as expressive or emotive as we've seen before and this is so rich in that mm -hmm, regard mm -hmm. and we talked about this with The Wind Rises how it feels even though Wind Rises hasn't become Miyazaki's final film it felt like him making this culmination with all his films to date that's what this is right the, 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 the tale of Princess Kaguya you have the transformations of Pompoko here in the way that Kaguya grows almost from, from scene to scene almost within a cut she goes from being six years old to ten years old to a teenager you have elements of My Neighbours the Amadas we'll, we'll come to that when we get to that film the, there are fairy tale sequences in there that are very similar here Only Yesterday you, you mentioned in the art style, but there's a wonderful flight sequence which almost recalls, I think, one of your favourite scenes yeah. in the entirety of the Ghibli canon we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that kind of a relationship can make someone quite literally sore. And there, there is that moment in this film and it's totally magical. And it, it goes into a moment where you see uh, Kaguya in, in flight and harmonising with nature and geese, which is exactly a scene uh, from Kiki's Delivery Service. And I mentioned that in that episode, that that is a totally Miyazaki moment. We've got this fantastical, magical uh, young woman harmonizing with nature uh, through flight. Mm -hmm. And we get the same thing here, which kind of raises a, a big question, Michael. Uh, is The Tale of the Princess Kaguya secretly a Miyazaki movie? <laughs> That is such a bombshell, Jake. Can you expand on that? Well, there is elements here that when you read them out loud, like with bringing Joe Hisaishi on, they feel so familiar, but in the context of being directed by Takahata, they feel actually quite new and bold. And like we've got this young girl heading out into the world, having to learn her place, becoming a strong woman in the face of idiot men. <laughs> uh, we've got this divide between nature and the city and the, the destructive power and corruption that comes with that urban uh, kind of frivolous lifestyle. And I wonder if at the end of their respective careers, Miyazaki and Takahata were looking at each other's work and going, God, maybe he had the right idea. <laughs> well, you can certainly see the, the, the symbiotic relationship between the two. The sequence, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the film, where Kage has that dream sequence, I'm not sure whether it's 
meant to be actually real that she she goes and sees the the charcoal worker who has this little speech about sustainability in forests that nails down so much of what is in Princess Mononoke right which is the the relationship between industry people there's industry big industry there there are sustainable farmers and then there's nature and the the relationship between you can kill the forest or the forest may seem dead but it'll come back in 10 years and that's why you can go and feed off it again. That's quite beautiful. But this is undeniably Takahata as well. It's there in Pompoko with the urbanization. This film has some wonderful sequences of bamboo craft and bowl making. and These, these bowls. Those bowls reminds me of the safflower dye making scenes in Only Yesterday. Yeah. There's so much art in this film. Yeah. You have the art scrolls, which Kaguya unfurls across the entire castle floor. You have doodling, where she's being taught calligraphy as uh, as a young woman in society should by this sort of overbearing teacher. But you look at her her notebook and she's been doodling little cartoony animals. It's like, how dare you doodle? Yeah, and, and then compared to Wind Rises, we both end up with these characters that are kind of trapped inside working on these things that have could both be read in a way as animation. Surrogates for maybe the filmmakers or the animators or the lot of the animation filmmaker. It's really fascinating that. But for me, this film, you said that you'd, you'd heard that this was a sad film. It's a long film. There's a lot in it. It has a very glacial pace. It takes its time. It doesn't hurry. For me, it's this sense of mortality. Rewatching it now, it's heavy with this melancholy, but this acceptance of the inevitability of death, where Kaguya knows that she'll have this brief life on Earth before she has to go back to the moon, before she has to go back to the, the land of the dead or the land of spirits, whatever but it did is. Did you get that the first time you watched it? Because I wonder if this viewpoint of yours is only coming from the fourth or fifth time round, because I don't know the story. I'm not familiar with the traditional folktale either. Um... I, I just knew it was sad, but I didn't know where that sadness was going to come from. I think there's an expectation in the way this film tells its story that you know how it's going to finish because it's such a well-known folk tale in, in Japan, Japanese culture. But yes, when about a third of the way through and halfway through, it suddenly announced that she lives on the moon. It may seem a bit random <laughs> for, for a Western viewer. But it's there, this theme, all the way through, not just in the that sustainable farming metaphor, but the song, as we hear more and more verses of the song all the way through and the way it resolves with the water wheel turns round and it's this beautiful, poignant image of the cycle of death and regeneration and rebirth. You have 10 years of aggressive farming on that mountain and then you've got to leave it alone and the trees will come back. And Miyazaki in The Wind Rises talks about this where you have your 10 years of genius and you better use it. Takata has a very different viewpoint here where we know we will die, but we have to live it to the full. But don't worry, when you die, there will be more beyond that. And it's Takata, whether it's personal or whether it's didactic, he's dealing with that mortality that this generation, him, and Miyazaki, Suzuki, all the animators they've been working with, they will go away, but animation will live on. Mm. And I find that so overwhelmingly beautiful. And in this film as well, that is coded into the film where he is still innovating this far into his career. The standout sequence, looking back, it's only maybe two minutes, but there's a standout sequence in the middle where she runs out of the castle and the very 
limits of animation seems to be bending to to Takahata's vision there. Where so, it's so exciting mm-hmm. to watch as well, because he he's as I said with only yesterday, he is so up for breaking apart the style that he sets you up with at the beginning of the film. And it is such a rush when she breaks through and the music, it's every part of it changes. The music, the style, the sound design. And the figures and forms of, even though, as we said, they're quite sketchy anyway, but the figures and forms of her character just kind of pull apart and become lines, a flurry of lines. The music has, this is one piece of music that's playing, but then it disappears and it's just the sound of, it almost sounds like it's flickering pages or it's her running through the reeds of grass, but it's just this absolutely wonderful sequence that works in its own right and you can't not watch that and not feel inspired for what could happen in this medium it's not traditional it's not conventional it's not just another animated film it's suggesting a whole future there did you get that on this first viewing what did you take from this because it's also a massive slab of movie yeah i i think as with the wind rises i feel like as i was watching this this is only going to get better with age and get better with each rewatch of it, which I haven't had with all of the films that we've watched, really. Um, I think the end point was where it kind of hit the hardest for me about facing death and this being his last film, is this idea of presenting a battle, which had, for me, imagery reminding me of Princess Mononoke, of people lining up in trenches and on turrets with bows and arrows against this this enemy that really just floats in and floats out and has no concerns for the will of the people really and we have this war to be won for Kaguya and nothing happens because you can't face it you can't fight it yeah and so we have spoken about Ghibli being anti, anti-battle, anti-violence. It's interesting that the, uh, going back to your original point about the project that he wanted to make in the first place mm-hmm. had to be closed because of being, needing to be anti-violent. And I absolutely love that there is no battle here. Mm-hmm. And she just goes. And that I kind of wasn't ready for that. And I don't think no one would be. And then the film ends. And it made me think of endings that we've we've quite liked of Kiki's Delivery Service, which is this bold young woman going out in the world, finding herself. And then at the end, even though it's just in the narration that she says that sometimes that things would be hard and sometimes she's sad, but that's okay. And then in when Marnie was there, we got a similar reflection there. And when near the end of this film, Kaguya is trying to save herself, not go back to the moon. She wants to remain on Earth and she goes through the things that she's learned from humanity and she does lift off these, these bad things that have happened to her and the bad things that have been done to the world around her. But that whole monologue ends with a, the final great thing that you get from humanity is there's feelings. And I love that that's what we end with Takahata. You love your feelings, Jake. <laughs> I do. But how do you feel about this film in the context of Jacob's Ladder? Oh, God, it's going to be a hard one. Let's find out. Okay, Michael, there's a lot here. There's a lot of weight to this film. 
it's time to figure out where we're going to put it on Michael Leader's leaderboard. So since this is the final episode of the series, I'm going to quickly run through my leaderboard from bottom to top. So 17 to 1, starting with Tales from Earthsea, The Cat Returns, Arietti, How's Moving Castle, When Marnie Was There, Pompoco, Only Yesterday, Top 10, Ponyo, Castle in the Sky, Spirited Away, Porco Rosso, The Wind Rises, Kiki's Delivery Service, Mononoke, Grave of the Fireflies, My Neighbor Totoro, and number one, Whisper of the Heart. If we're going to stick with this tiering system as we've been going on, Tale of the Princess Kaguya, I think, is banging on the door of top tier. The only thing that stops it from being up there is I find this a little bit of a slog because it's so specific in its tone and length. And But there are so many sequences that I return to. I think this is going to slot in at number eight, just between Spirited Away and Porco Rosso. It's the second highest Takahata film in my list, and it's comfortably in the top ten. But Jake, where in Jacob's Ladder would it go for you? Well, interestingly, Michael, they're going to slot in at exactly the same place. Oh. Yeah, I think that's the first time maybe our lists align. Uh, exactly. But yeah, this is going in at number eight for me. Um, just to quickly recap mine, uh, from the bottom to the top, it's The Cat Returns, Arietti, Howl's Moving Castle, Tales from Earthsea, uh, When Marnie Was There, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, Castle in the Sky, Pompoko, Whisper of the Heart, The Wind Rises, Ponyo, Grave of the Fireflies, Kiki's Delivery Service, Only Yesterday, My Neighbor Totoro, and number one is Porco Rosso. Mm-hmm. And so this is just going to slot in actually quite nicely next to The Wind Rises uh, and just taking the eighth slot from Whisper of the Heart for me. Uh, but again, I would reiterate, I feel like those two films in particular are going to be really rewarding for me in the long run. Maybe next time watch it as a four and a half hour long double bill? Yeah, we should do that. We should Once we run out of episodes, maybe we can do a Redux series. Um, <laughs> and although that might be the end of this series, it's not the end of our episodes for 2019, is it? Isn't, it isn't, no. So... We may be having a summer hiatus in terms of normal episodes, but we are going on tour into the meat space. Yeah, the Ghibli Fest begins. <laughs> exactly. So first up, we are going to be working with the British Museum, who are having this huge manga exhibition at the moment for the rest of the summer towards the end of the year. And we are going to be working with them on a series of four screenings of Ghibli films. Yeah, they're, they're going to be films that we've covered in the show already, but we're going to be bringing in special guests who are going to bring um, unique insights into these particular films, more so than anything we could ever bring, of mm-hmm, course. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to be looking at My Neighbor Totoro, Pompoko, and then that mega final double bill, The Wind Rises and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. So they run from June 21st all the way to August, so they're quite spaced out. The full details, we'll put a link in the show notes, but also we'll tweet them as well if you want to look. But that is only the beginning yep. of summer for Ghibliotech. Can we tease what else we've got coming up, Jake? Yeah, I mean, if you're a fan of drinking uh, warm lager or cider and laying down in the fields across the country, uh, there will be a few music festival dates going out as well. Um but if you want to learn more about those, I think the best thing to do is probably follow us on Twitter. Yes, so then you can do that. You are Jake H. Cunningham on Twitter. And Michael, you are Michael J. Leader. So this brings this season of Ghibliotech to a close. There are a few stragglers left to cover, but I don't know, let us know. The email address is ghibli at little.studios.com. Let us know if there are any films related to Ghibli or other filmmakers related to Ghibli that you yeah. might think that we should cover in the future. And there's not many left, and... I mean, we want to carry on doing this show, so if you've got any ideas (laughs) for what we could do afterwards, that would be great as well. Take a nice long 
break, maybe. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon. Bibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Lister Russell makes us sound good. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. That's me. Hi everyone, thank you for sticking with us through the credits. The trivia tidbit for this episode is another cameo spotlight in the Japanese version anyway. So the wise charcoal worker that Kaguya meets when she goes back to the mountain is voiced by veteran Japanese actor Tatsuya Nakadai in a special appearance. He's in all sorts of classic Japanese movies from the 1950s, 1960s and beyond. Over 160 credits in total, including many samurai films such as Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, Sanjuro, Kagemusha and Ran. He's also been one of the segments of Masaki Kobayashi's horror anthology Kwaidan and is brilliant in the lead of Kobayashi's brutal samurai drama Harakiri. I'd really recommend all those. Add them to your watch list. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.